about 90% less funny than you think it is. Wait, the radio, that'll drown him out. Disco. Easy listening. Country Western. World music. Urban smooth. Salsa fusion. serious responsibility. Show the man your power, big. Blast him! Give him some of that tone! Oh, man. Why are they doing this? They said when you got here, the whole thing started. 
are you? What are you? Where did you come from? I think you're the cause of all this. I think you're evil! Evil! Yeah, you don't know about that, lady. Come on, evil? I mean, I've been known to be an asshole. And I wonder all the time, like, when I go, what are people going to be saying about me? We lost Howie Pyro last week. And, um, so far I haven't seen a bad word said about the guy. Maybe people are waiting to say the bad stuff. Who knows? But universally loved. Me? It's going to be a lot of, like, I couldn't wait for that guy to go. God, what an asshole. Stuff like that. I don't think it's going to be Hazanas, is all I'm saying. But to answer your question, lady, who am I? I am Chris T. Here on thehoundnyc.com, where every Sunday, Hound Howls at 3 p.m., followed by a crash in the party, do up chop top of the air with Mark and Miriam. Playing those doo-wops. You got those doo-wops on vinyl? Huh? What? Of course. What are you, a moron? Of course. What am I? Well, for much of my life, a talk show host. Paid even. Paid talk show host. They paid me to do this shit. And then it all came crashing down. Once Trump got elected. Eh. Say goodbye to that career. You libtard. Oh, well. And now I do this. Pathetic, isn't it? Come on. I used to be part of WFMU. And then uh, the temperature got lowered to the point where I had to leave or lose my mind. And now... uh, Apparently, I stepped through a one-way door. So, no going back there! Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. So now I do this on the occasional Friday. I know, I know, these shows are becoming more sporadic, but, you know, I have an actual life, so... You would think, because I haven't had a job in I don't know how many years, that it wouldn't matter, but... But, but, but it does. We have a very special returning champion tonight. Constitutional scholar and professor of law, Ken Katkin of Salmon P. Chase College of Law, Northern Kentucky University, joins me tonight to review the current Supreme Court news. And boy, is there a lot of news about the uh, leak of the Alito draft, about overturning Roe v. Wade so much more and uh, Ken will also be celebrating the life of Howie Pyro tomorrow on his radio show Trash Flow Radio which can be heard on WAIF 88.3 FM in the Cincinnati area Saturdays from 3 to 5 p.m. and online at waferadio.org so we'll have uh, Ken Katkin Professor Ken Katkin join us in just a bit to tease out some of the bullshit that's going on with the Supreme Court and uh, abortion. Now, um, I paid for an abortion back in 1998. I was dating this woman who uh, I actually met through the radio. She heard my show. This show, Aerial View, which at the time was on Friday nights on WFMU. 6 p.m. and she sent me a letter because that's what people did. They sent each other letters in the mail. And uh, one thing led to another. And we met. I was living in Hoboken at the time. She was way the hell up there in Mount Tremper on Wittenberg Road. Now, I had never been to Mount Tremper. I didn't know where the hell Mount Tremper was. I didn't know what Wittenberg Road was, but I would drive up there on the weekend at the time. I didn't have my own car. I was borrowing this shitty Ford 
escort station wagon from some friends of mine where uh, the headliner had started to fall down in the vehicle and it was stapled up. Someone took a staple gun and stapled up the headliner. I remember that. But it was I was grateful to have a vehicle because for whatever reason, I was between cars. I, I had had a car since I was 16 years old and my learner's permit. But at that particular time, I didn't have a car. I don't think I had a job either. I may have been unemployed back then. This is all written down somewhere. And before the program tonight, I tried to go find it and I couldn't. So who the hell knows? I'm going to have to lean on my memory. By the way, the phone lines are open for a few minutes before we welcome Ken Katkin in here. If you want to call 760-I-CALL-AV, 760-422-5528 if you've ever paid for an abortion. Or if you ever had an abortion. Or if you ever had an abortion paid for by somebody else. 760-I-CALL-AV, 760-422-5528. So me and this uh, Mount Tremper gal, which is up there near Woodstock... I would go up and see her on the weekends, 110 miles, whatever it was, 115 miles to her place. Little ramshackle hippie cabin there on Wittenberg Road with nothing for heat but a wood stove. And, I mean, the wind would whip through that place. It was built by some hippie, probably stoned at the time. And I kind of, I dug it, though. At the time, it was exactly what I needed. And you know that bloom of new love? You know, when you first fall for somebody and everything is great with the world and everything's great with them and everything's great with you and you're just basking in that that infatuation, that chemical, that dopamine hit that you get from somebody actually liking you, tolerating you, putting up with your bullshit, that kind of thing. So we were in love. We fell in love pretty quickly and having sex... And using protection, I was using protection, and then there was an incident, condom incident. Where's the condom? Uh Uh-oh. And I remember having to go in search of the condom. And it took a few minutes. And I remember thinking, when I found the condom, I remember thinking, oh shit, This isn't going to turn out well, right? Because even though it was new love, new relationship, we liked each other, the whole thing, it's way too early to be contemplating having a child with somebody. It's way too early. At this point, we had known each other maybe 30 days. I'm not even sure it was a month. So lo and behold, she comes up pregnant. And now we're like, oh, shit. You know... Oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a child? Sure, it would be nice to have a child. Do I want to have a child now? Am I able to support a child now? Is this a good idea to move forward with this? By the way, not my decision to make, her decision to make, as far as I was concerned. I mean, yes, we talked about it. But the conversation was more along the lines of like, yeah, no, not going to happen, right? Right. That was the conversation. Not going to happen. So I distinctly recall on one sad day, I don't remember what day of the week it was, going to get her up in Mount Tremper, driving her down to Monroe, New York, which was the nearest place we can go to, the nearest clinic that uh, would provide an abortion. And having an abortion. And me paying for the abortion. And it feels weird to say that because it feels like "Ah, I paid for her dinner, took her out to dinner. Feels weird to put it that way. Maybe that's not the way you put it, but what am I know? What do I know? I'm a dope. That's what it comes down to. If I wasn't a dope, I wouldn't have been in that situation in the first place. But like I said, we were being responsible. It was an accident. It was a big old whoopsie daisy. Whoopsie daisy! <laughs> and I've always had this weird thought in the back of my head. I, I remember thinking, what if she only pretended to get the procedure? What if somewhere out there, 
It's a kid that looks like me. Oh my God. Imagine some kid shows up all these years later. Dad, you're my dad. It, it's happened. I, I know a guy it happened too. This girl showed up, teenage girl. By the way, I'm your daughter. Can you imagine that shit? He was a grown-ass man at that point. Didn't know that this one-night stand had resulted in progeny. His? So what the F? It's happened. I don't think it's going to happen to me. So there you go. That's the story of my abortion. And uh, let's welcome Ken Katkin into the program right about now. Again, constitutional scholar and professor of law at Salmon P. Chase College of Law, Northern Kentucky University. And Ken, is it true you recently had a graduation ceremony there at the school? Did you attend the graduation ceremony, by the way? Please tell me. Aha! You know what? Somehow we got disconnected. Let me try him back. Here we go. Ken Katkin, constitutional scholar and professor of law at Salmon P. Chase College of Law at Northern Kentucky University. Thank you for joining us tonight on Aerial View. Of course. I was uh, I was hearing you talking to me, but you'd hung up on me already. I uh, If I did, it was inadvertent. It would probably happen when I tried to take phone calls. I'll yep. never do that again. All right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, yeah, we did. We did graduate. We had our graduation the other day, so I'm, I'm almost, I'm almost sprung. I just have to grade some exams. You don't mean sprung in the like rap uh, sense of sprung, hip hop sense of sprung, right? No, Please? no, I just okay. mean liberated from oh, having liberated, to go to class yeah, for the a few old, months. Yeah, the old meaning of sprung. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, I guess it could be exciting too to be yeah. done to be done with the work year. I guess. Right. Uh, so wow. That's good. How was the graduation ceremony? Was there anything notable about it for you? Any good speakers or how did it go? Well, it was notable to me that it was it was the first um, potential super spreader event I've attended since the since the beginning of the pandemic years ago. So, you know, there were thousands of people there. There were no vaccine card requirements. There was no masking. It was indoors. So it, it felt, you know, unusual to me to be in a, in a room like that. And I, I have not heard that, you know, anybody got infected there. But that definitely, uh, you know, that, that's what I was thinking about mainly while I was there. Okay, good. And, and ha- that was already last Friday. So if you had gotten COVID, you'd know by now, wouldn't you? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. I've, I've been vaxxed huh. four times. And, you know, the, as soon as they let people get a fifth, I'll be the first online for that. Yeah, I'm waiting for the fourth shot before we travel in July. I heard that it's probably, you know, if you're going to get on a plane, get it before you get on a plane. So I'm holding off a little while longer for the fourth shot to uh, get that get yep. that settled away. But uh, I just told the story of the abortion that I paid for back in 98, and I did actually find my journal from that year i you know for a while i i kept a pretty extensive journal i don't know if you ever kept a diary or a journal or anything like that it's interesting to go back and look and see what you were doing on february 14th 1998 and beyond and that was right (laughs) right around the time that i was paying for an abortion (laughs) happy valentine's day there you go. Um, but the news, of course, and, and you couldn't escape it in the last week about uh, the uh, leaked first draft of a, um, you know, a what do they call it? An opinion by Samuel Leo? What's the right way to call it? An opinion? Yeah, I mean, his opinion would be an opinion. And right. if you add together um, the other ones that weren't leaked, uh, they would add up to a decision. So a decision includes all the opinions that get written. And the opinion is about the overturning of Roe v. Wade uh, all the way back to 1973. This has been a law, so like 50 years, almost 50 years, constitutional law. And it created a firestorm, immediately set off this firestorm of controversy. A lot of it, of course, about the potential loss of a national right 
to abortion, throwing it back to the states, and we all know what disaster that is, what that's going to mean. But then a lot of controversy about the leak itself as well. I mean, in your estimation, is there more uh, upset about the leak than the going away of abortion? I know the you know the right wing in this country is trying to make a big deal out of the leak. How big a deal should it be? Well, you know, I, I, it's not nearly as big a deal as the as the opinion that was leaked. I mean, the opinion that was leaked is a, is a much bigger deal than the fact that there was a leak. You know, on, on the one hand, you could say, well, the the it's unprecedented in the history of the Supreme Court, really, for an entire draft opinion to get leaked like that. So that that seems like a big deal. But on the other hand, I would say for a lot of reasons, it's not as big a deal as it seems like. One is that um, although it's unprecedented for the, the text of a, an opinion to get leaked, it's extremely precedented for, you know, discussions going on inside the, the court to get leaked. In fact, that had already happened in this very case. You know, like so about four days before the, the draft opinion was leaked, the, the Wall Street Journal uh, on its editorial page uh, published an editorial where they basically accurately described the state of what was going on. You know, they said, well, there's there, Justice Alito has written a, a five justice opinion that will overturn Roe. And uh, Justice Roberts is lobbying some of the five to, to, to not join that opinion. And, and the editorial page of The Wall Street Journal says, and we we want those five to stand strong and don't 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 give in to Justice Roberts's entreaties. So, you know, that leak was out there in this very case just four days earlier. And that kind of leak is fairly typical. So I think people are really overblowing, you know, how unprecedented it is to say, well, they never leaked the text of an opinion before. Yeah, but they frequently leaked the, um, you know, the, the substance of, you know, what 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 the opinion's going to say or who's who's on what side or that kind of thing, including in this very case. Including Roe v. Wade. Wasn't that yeah, uh, yeah, decision Wade, released that was, early before it was actually, it was it made its way into the news before it was actually announced? Yeah, no, it turned out that was really only by a few hours in the end because, you know, there was no internet in those days. So when something got leaked, you know, the earliest you could learn about it would be in the next day's newspaper. And uh, that was leaked a day early, but it, it came out in the new morning newspapers the, the same morning that the, the case got decided. So, yeah, Roe, the outcome of Roe was leaked, but people could only learn it in the press a few hours before the court issued it. By the way, the abortion that we had, uh, this uh, woman and I that were dating, the Mount Tremper lady, uh, was February 4th, 1998. So if a child did appear on my doorstep, it would be 23 or 24 years old. <laughs> Holy shit, that would be a shocker. And it was her third, by the way. Uh, she was 10 or 11 weeks pregnant. This is why I, I'm glad that back then I wrote a lot of stuff down. I would have never remembered this. But she was already 10 or 11 weeks pregnant. And so this decision, I mean, this lawsuit, by the way, was it Louisiana or Mississippi the lawsuit came out of? Mississippi. Mississippi. And the lawsuit was about what? The 23-week mark, which is where viability outside the womb, uh, we've always told is possible. Or what was the lawsuit about, actually? Yeah. So so the the um, the, the Roe versus Wade case and then, again, a, a later case, which is actually the current controlling law uh, from 1992 called the Casey decision, um, both of those cases say that uh, states can't prohibit abortion before the fetus becomes viable. And so viability actually has been sliding a little bit earlier because of um, technology that can take care of premature babies. But um, right now, the viability line is about 23 weeks. So under Roe and Casey, which are the controlling precedents, um, it would be unconstitutional for any state to try to prohibit or ban abortion or even put an undue burden in the path of a woman seeking an abortion uh, up to the viability line, up to the 23-week line. Now, um, Mississippi just simply passed a law that that moved that back to 15 weeks. So, so they said it's illegal in Mississippi for there to be any abortions after um, 15 weeks of pregnancy. So that's directly, straightforwardly unconstitutional under the Supreme Court's controlling current controlling case law, because 23 weeks is the viability line. A ban that takes place earlier is unconstitutional. And this ban takes place eight weeks earlier. What is the legal theory that Alito is advancing on? And and I, I obviously they did that sketch last Saturday on Saturday Night Live. They opened up with the sketch about how it, it goes back to the 17th century, apparently. Yeah, it's sort of is. Is it really that ludicrous? 
I think it is that ludicrous, but I could try to explain it, you know, not not using humor, but I do think it's that ludicrous. So the the the, the issue the issue that he's trying to address himself to is um, you know, what 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 does he want to say was wrong with Roe? So he sort of starts by saying, well, the, the main thing that was wrong with Roe is that the Constitution doesn't mention abortion, but Roe found that there was a constitutional right to abortion. So he, he sort of starts with that idea that it's not correct for the court to discover constitutional rights that aren't mentioned in the Constitution. But but he can't make an argument as simple as that because there's a lot of other constitutional rights that the court has discovered and that people currently have protection for um, that also aren't mentioned in the Constitution. So, so then he needs to come up with some theory. You know, is he saying that nobody has any rights if they're not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution? Or is he saying, well, they have some rights, but just not the right to choose abortion? And so he, he goes down that path. And so what he does is he says, I, I, he acknowledges that there could be some rights that aren't mentioned in the Constitution, but that are still constitutional rights. But the reason he says abortion isn't one of them um, is he says those could only be rights that already would have been recognized as rights at the time the Constitution was ratified, or at least at the time the, the 14th Amendment was ratified, which is right after the Civil War. So he's saying if something wasn't recognized as a right by 1868 at the latest, um, then it can't possibly be um, a, 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 an unenumerated constitutional right. Um, and so then he notes that... Um, you know, in the late 19th century, of course, women couldn't even vote then. But he, but he says, you know, basically because men wouldn't give women any rights at all, including reproductive choice rights, then um, that therefore, you know, that concept of women's rights and, and reproductive choice rights is just locked in and can never evolve. So that's what he says. So I, I think I think that is ridiculous. And uh, you know, I, I that that's that's essentially what he says, though. It certainly goes against that shit that we heard all through school about the Constitution being a living, breathing document, does it not? I mean, this is again originalists versus evolutionists in terms of their approach to the Constitution. Yeah, except it's phony, right? So I mean, so the, the, what you just said is is a debate that people have had. You know, is is the Constitution a, an evolving, living document, or or is it does it only mean what it meant in 1787? But Alito doesn't take either side of that argument, right? He says um, he says, well, it is in a living, it's a living, evolving document up to a point. It could live and evolve up to the end of the 19th century, um, but not beyond that. And and that's just totally unprincipled. And and you know, so he he if it he sounds simply, like what Joe Biden would call malarkey. <laughs> malarkey. I mean, it's malarkey. It's malarkey. Yeah. And he also doesn't even take account of things like, um, well, it, it was in nineteen twenty is when we got the nineteenth amendment, which gives women the right to vote, and and that does signify. Uh, an evolution in um, our constitutional framework for thinking about women's rights, but but he doesn't even pay any attention to that. He just totally ignores that. So you know he definitely does seem to be saying the Constitution can't give women any rights because it didn't give women any rights um, in 1787 or in 1868, and therefore it never it never can. And uh, and that's uh, you know I think that's just a, a, a you know because men used to deny women rights, now women have to be denied rights forever. That, that's basically the essence of his argument. Wow. Wild. Just absolutely wild. So, again, let's go back to the 14th Amendment, which uh, is the Equal Protection Clause adopted in 1868 during the era of Reconstruction, following the Civil War, the, the aim to protect rights of formerly enslaved people in the South who were being subjected to new discriminatory state laws and to provide them some kind of federal protection. Uh, and then, actually, the right to privacy emanates from the Fourteenth Amendment. You're going to correct me anytime yeah. I no, you're, you're right go wrong on any of this. And so, the right to privacy uh, stretched all the way to include the right to to do what you'd like with your body, uh, to make it your choice what becomes of your body. And this is the the fulcrum that Roe v. Wade was based upon. So he, he's saying. Essentially, that was incorrect, that the right to privacy doesn't doesn't stretch so far as to cover a uh, what the right has for the last 50 years since Roe v. Wade said this is a living being. Hence, these fetal heartbeat laws that they want to introduce yeah. next, that it's not a blastula. It's not a collection of cells 
that has yet to form anything that we would agree is uh, life, and it can't exist outside the mother's body, but somehow it has rights equal to, if not exceeding, those of the person it's growing within. Yeah, yeah, and I, I really want to emphasize one part of what you said, and, and just to bring out the phoniness of the Alito opinion, right, because the Equal Protection Clause, as you correctly talked about, you know, in 1868, people would have been primarily thinking, you know, well, what kind of equality are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about racial equality. They, 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 they mostly weren't thinking about gender equality, although some people were, and women started bringing claims to the Supreme Court for equal, equal treatment for men and women, you know, immediately, as the earliest cases got there in 1873. But, but the court at that time said, no, this is just about racial equality. It's not about gender equality. Now, Later on, beginning in the 1950s and 60s and up to the present, um, the court has expanded um, the equal protection concept to include gender equality. So there's a lot of cases that talk about um, it, it's unconstitutional for the law to discriminate against women in, in certain ways. Um, but Alito is essentially saying all those cases are wrong because he's saying since since women's rights weren't at the core of what people were thinking about in 1868 when they gave us the Equal Protection Clause, they're basically not part of the Equal Protection Clause and all, all women's rights are um, up for grabs. Um, but on the other hand, the other part I wanted to address about what you said, you know, it's this is why I say it's so phony and cherry picked is let's think about a different contemporary controversy like the uh, vaccine mandates, right? So you might think, well, if someone thinks there's no constitutional right to bodily autonomy, then they might think that the government could regulate both abortion and vaccine mandates. But but that's not how um, Alito is looking at this. Right. So even while he's saying, well, there's no right to abortion, you know, I think his argument would be. But there's still a constitutional right against a vaccine mandate even though it's not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution either, because in the 19th century, there weren't any vaccine mandates. Right. So I, I think it's kind of he's just saying all all of the law has to kind of be frozen the way it was, you know, in the 19th century. And so if women didn't have rights, then they, they can't have rights now. But if no, if the government didn't try to make anyone get vaccinated, then then the government can't try to make anyone get vaccinated now. So it's it's a complete assault on democracy. And it's not even as simple as, as just saying, um, well, if something's not mentioned in the Constitution, then the court shouldn't say it's a constitutional right, because there's many things he would still be willing to say are a constitutional right, even though they're not mentioned in the Constitution. Now, I should point out that uh, I um, am descended from, among others, uh, Greeks who invented democracy. And I like democracy. I'm going to go on record <laughs> as saying I like democracy. I'm all for it. We are uh, actually a constitutional republic, so we're sort of a hybrid, like your car, Ken Katkin. That's right. Um, but <laughs> by the uh, way, thank thank your ancestors for me for inventing democracy. It's a great invention, and I, I, I admire the Greeks. Uh, it's quite the innovation, and we're the you know first really sustained experiment in it. And the experiment might be ending horribly in the next few years. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I'm still in there pulling for democracy, and I think oddly enough, you know, the invasion, uh, the illegal invasion of Ukraine, is helping people understand how precious democracies are. When you see other people who haven't had democracy that long say, fuck, yeah, democracy, then it makes you think, well, what have we been taking, you know, for granted all these years? So uh, there's a number of things that we uh, we we thought were settled, just like when uh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett did her confirmation hearings and Brett Kavanaugh did his and, and Gorsuch did his. And they talked about this being settled law Roe v. Wade. There's a lot of people out there saying, well, essentially they lied. They lied to Congress. They said it was settled law indicating maybe reading between the lines that they wouldn't unsettle that settled law. Where do you stand on any of that? This idea that they sat there during these confirmation hearings and said, yeah, it's settled law. You know, I, I, I do think they lied, but not exactly for this, the, the, the reason you said. So, you know, I, I think that Saying that something is settled law, you know, if you're trying to get on the Supreme Court, um, I don't think that means that you won't unsettle it, right? The Supreme Court has the privilege to to unsettle settled law. So, so I don't think that was the lie. But what I think the lie was is, um, you remember there was a Texas law not too that not too long ago, a month or two ago, that essentially ended um, abortion in Texas, and and that that case 
you know, hasn't hasn't even been argued on the merits yet to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, you know, has not issued any real decisions in that case. But they they refused to um, enter an injunction to stop that law taking effect. Now, they had not overruled Roe yet. You know, in this Dobbs case that we're talking about, they're probably going to overrule Roe. But it seems to me that the minimum that settled law has to mean, even for the Supreme Court, is that um, until they overrule it, they have to enforce it. And in the Texas case, they refused to enforce it, even though they hadn't yet overruled it, and they didn't overrule it. And so on that point, I think they can fairly be called liars, that they lied when they said that they respected it as settled law. Because I think you could, you could, um, you could, you could overrule a settled case, but you can't refuse to enforce a settled case that hasn't been overruled. Here's what I, where I really trip up over all this, because I, I do think there are two kinds of um, what they call pro-life people. There's the one who are genuine in their beliefs that it's somehow murder. And there's the other one that's disingenuous because they, for instance, support capital punishment and they don't make a squeak about it when these kids are born and then not cared for and not paid for and allowed to live in poverty and undernourished and underfed and sometimes even murdered by their parents. They don't make they don't make a squeak about it. So. What what would you say? I mean, about the the judges on the Supreme Court who we now know hew to the right of the political spectrum, are they being disingenuous about this? Are they acting from some sincere belief, religious or otherwise? If you had to gaze into a crystal ball, because I know you don't know them personally, and it's hard to sort of tease this out, is this a disingenuous ruling from Alito and? the rest that would vote for it or are they they just catholics you know it's it's really hard for me to you know as you said i don't know them I, i'm not a psychologist i can't read anyone's minds and also about ideology i think ideology tends to you know kind of be complex and uh so that if you ask well you know why why does somebody believe that the the fetus is a person you know they, they may believe that very sincerely you know, sometimes I think it may be, well, they start out with kind of sexist assumptions about women, and then that leads them to devalue um, women's bodily autonomy or women's reproductive choice. And then that leads them to think it's okay for the government to to regulate um, uh, uh, forced, forced pregnancy, which is what we're really talking about here. Um, you know, I mean, so I think people, the ideology could take people in either direction. I think people well, who were are you, sexist- Well, Cam, were you will, raised uh, Jewish, by the way? Were you observant when you were raised? Uh, was your family I, observant? I, I, yeah, I am Jewish, but no, no, my parents were not observant. Okay. Um, we didn't really have religion. My, you know, my, my, um, there was some in, among my extended family, some people who were religious, but none of this is an issue in Jewish law. Anyhow, Jewish law allows abortion right up to the moment. No, of birth. I, I mean, that's what I was, where I was going because, yeah. you know, I was raised in the Roman Catholic church and it was every sperm is sacred. I mean, that's why that, that number was so brilliant. That Mon Monty Python yeah, number, yeah. every sperm is sacred. And now it's literal because now we want to say that fertilization is when life begins. Now there's a push because this is incremental. This is give them an inch and they take a yard. So th this is going to this is really bad if this goes down as it as we think it's going to in June because it means they're going to keep trying for yet more and more, does it not? Yeah, and actually, just before we leave the question you asked me, I feel like there's a lot of connections between the question you asked me about, you know, which is the chicken and which is the egg between, you know, caring about fetuses or, or you know, not caring about women's rights. But I, I, it reminds me in a lot of ways of the contemporary thing with QAnon. Like these QAnon people, you know, do they actually believe that they're helping to protect children against sex abuse? Is that something they, they believe for real? Or, or is that just something that's kind of a, you know, a, a fig leaf over their craziness? And to me, it's kind of hard to answer that question. I think I it's worse. Think I, think, I think they are the ones abusing children. Not maybe not sexually, but I think that they're, you know, they don't really care all that much for kids. And this is their way to show all of us that they really care about kids. I think the lady doth protest too much. I think it's Shakespearean. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of that madness emanates from is like, 
I'm the one who cares about kids. And then we find out, of course, you're John Wayne Gacy. So yeah. I think I think it's a lot more yeah. basic. But yeah, maybe that's right. I think you could be right. But I kind of just was getting it. There's maybe this ideological feedback loop where, you know, they start to believe things and then they start to believe other things because of that. And then they start becoming more self-justifying because of things that they've induced themselves to believe. And, you know, so I, I it's, that's a, kinda, it's very I performative. All it's all it's really a performative thing that goes on. It's really like this weird mirror version of virtue signaling. And maybe I guess it is virtue signaling. It's their signaling their virtue. But again, uh, you got to point out the inconsistencies in their thinking because they don't give a fuck about that kid. Once it leaves the vagina, once it leaves the vagina, it's like you're on your own kid because I mean, we have stunning levels of child poverty in this country, stunning levels of, women who die in childbirth. We're behind all of these other countries. And I don't even mean in some cases like first world countries where you could say their economies are anywhere comparable to ours. I'm talking about even some second and third world countries. It's embarrassing. It should be a national shame, but it's not because we focus on shit like who and who can't have an abortion. Yeah. And I mean, and you're right. And, and, you know, think of some other things too, like right now in the United States every year, you know, there's millions of people in the United States, but six to eight hundred women a year die in childbirth. Now, you know, nobody dies in a first trimester abortion. Nobody. You know, so so if you if you tell every woman they have to have forced pregnancy to term, you know, they're, uh, on a probabilistic model, you know, that's literally sentencing some of these women to death, and uh, you know, a very small number, but some of them, and uh, and that that um, you know th- that's a part of this that people aren't even talking about. Um, so but I cut you off before that. You're asking about what's, what else is coming. I think it's going to be a lot worse than before Roe versus Wade, because, for instance, before Roe versus Wade, you know, you had um, in 1973, before the Roe case was decided, you had 25 states where abortion was legal and 25 where it wasn't legal. But what you didn't have at all was any kind of restrictions to try to prevent anybody from going to another state where it was legal. Um, I think those kind of restrictions are coming very soon. You know, that that in, in a lot of these states that are immediately going to prohibit abortion, they're also starting to, you know, have laws that are going to prohibit women who live in those states from leaving the states to go to other states to get an abortion. Well, the um, other and, then, uh, and the other twist in all of this, it, correct me if I'm wrong again, is that we're not only going to go in these states where it's going to be outlawed, go after the providers, but the women themselves will be yeah, prosecuted. The women themselves. And that was also not how it was before Roe versus Wade. Wow. Right. So it's going to be much harsher regime that's going to fall on women, um, that they'll be criminally liable, that they'll be criminally liable even if they try to go to another state where abortion's legal. Um, there's going to be, um, you know, pressure, I think, in the um, uh, in the Congress. And we, we probably will see a point in time, you know, sometime in the next decade when the Republicans control both houses of Congress and, and the White House. And, um, you know, although Mitch McConnell says he would not break the filibuster rule, to advance um, uh, uh, abortion prohibition legislation. The rest of your sentence should be, he's a lying sack of shit. Yeah, that right, should be yeah, the rest exactly. of your sentence. I, right. you know, and who knows if yes. he'll even keep being the Republican right. leader. Because, I, I, I think, mean, I when he kept he, Merrick he actually, Garland from being uh, becoming a Supreme Court justice and then turned around, because on the basis that there was an election coming up, and turned around and fast-tracked Amy Coney Barrett, we all, I mean, look, he's yeah. a political opportunist and a... And a they yeah. don't. It's a human pile of garbage, is what he if, is. So, if, yeah. if his caucus wants him to pass um, a, a national abortion restricting regulation, and if the Supreme Court has already said there's no right to abortion, um, I think they're going to get that done with much less than a filibuster-proof majority. I think they're going to get it done. Talking to Ken Katkin, uh, who is a constitutional scholar, professor of law at Samuel P. Chase College of Law, Northern Kentucky University. Congratulations to the class of. 2022 did you see any really good mortarboards did anybody uh, put anything really nice on their mortarboard i didn't see anything no. right on a mortar i gotta i'll tell you a mortarboard story if you want to hear one though yes so you know i have like a kind of a crappy old mortarboard i've probably had it for like 25 years and it doesn't fit me that well and it doesn't look that good and i've just always worn it to graduation um well you know a, a couple of years ago uh my, my wife who's also a professor she she waited until all of our kids were out of college. We're not paying for college anymore. And finally, she's like, you know, we have these crappy mortar boards. I'm going to go buy myself a really good hood and just wear that to graduation every year from now on instead of this crappy old mortar board. And she did. She went out and got herself a really nice hood. So 
my graduation was not at the exact same time as hers. So I was like, hey, you got this great hood now. Can I can I borrow it? And she's like, no. And I was like, really? And she's like, no, no, you can't borrow my hood because you don't. She says to me, you don't have a PhD, you know, because law professors have JDs, not PhDs. She's like, I'm not going to let you wear this hood. You don't you can't masquerade as a PhD. So I was boxed out of like wearing a wait, nicer. Wait, wait, there's hood. a PhD hood? How does yeah, it say yeah, PhD? It's, it's, and it, yeah. And it's different than a, a mortar border. Did you ever either. tell her that only stands for piled high and deep, by <laughs> yeah. the way? No? Maybe I should tell her that as yeah. soon as I get off the air. Yeah. There you go. Piled high and deep. Uh, well, d- d- again, the, this whole thing, this road that we're going down, seems like a very treacherous one to me because they're going to start, they're going to start piling up these victories. And you and I have talked multiple times in the show, and a lot of it comes down to the shape of the current court was formed by uh, presidents who were not maj- a majority elected. They they were the minority. And then the Electoral College or the Supreme Court put them into office. George W. B. George W. Bush and and Donald Trump. The the shape of the current court is about two presidents who were not popularly elected. That's right. And and in fact confirmed by Senates who don't represent um if you count up all the senators who voted to confirm these justices and then count up the number of people who, who voted for them, you know, they weren't representing majorities of the population either. So as much as I love my people, the Greeks, uh, shout out to the Maltese and the Italians as well. Also, my people, there's a fundamental error here, isn't there, in the way that we uh, constructed our American democracy, namely the Electoral College. And what else would you say is a fundamental, functional, mechanical problem with our democracy? Yeah, I think the Electoral College is a big problem. The, the U.S. Senate is is a problem in two ways. You know, I think it's bad that the U.S. Senate is so malapportioned that, you know, Wyoming gets two senators just like California does, even though California has at least 70 times as many people. It's like um, 40 million people live in California. Yeah. yeah compared to not even a, a million in, in I think Wyoming. It's about, I think it's about 100 grand in Wyoming. I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah. I, I swear to God, I doubt the population is more than Newark. I swear right, to right, you, it's yeah. not more so, than Newark. So that's a terrible problem. And then that problem is compounded by what I think is even a worse problem, which isn't really in the Constitution. But the, 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 the Constitution just simply gives the House and the Senate the power to make their own rules of procedure. But the problem here is that the Senate, you know, has, has, has they've had a filibuster rule for quite a long time. And the, the original concept of the filibuster rule was that if the minority party just was really, really, really opposed to something, they, they could talk it to death and stop it from coming up from a vote. But it wasn't until the 21st century that that rule got routinized, right? So, so if you look in, in all the years from the beginning of the Republic to the year 2000 and add it all up, the filibuster was only used in the Senate less than 20 times total across hundreds of years. Whereas if you look now in, in every single Congress, it's used for essentially every single bill. So if you can't get 60 votes for something, you can't move it. And, and that's, I think, even worse than the malapportionment that comes from the two senators per state rule. Um, and when you add the two together, it, it's just um, it creates extraordinary dysfunction. Now, does that number that you mentioned count the uh, Jimmy Stewart one and uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or no? <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, when we talk about filibuster, to me, that was the filibuster. What Joe Biden talks about, you know, the one we have to stand up and talk for 20 hours or whatever it might be, but they bypassed that, didn't they? How long ago did they decide you don't have to stand there and gab for that long? Yeah, they changed those rules in the 80s, um, but it didn't um, really, you know, it wasn't until McConnell became the Republican leader that he really weaponized the change, and that was in the 21st century. Um, so, So beginning in the 1980s, nobody has to stand up anymore. But even after that, you know, it wasn't common to filibuster every single bill, um, it only it's only in the 21st century that it, it becomes just the norm to filibuster every bill and to say that nothing can move through the Senate unless unless the, um, there can be 60 votes to move it, which usually means, you know, eight to 10 votes from the minority party. Now, um, I was talking to, to a Republican friend of mine the other day, somebody who actually voted for Trump, somebody I, I like. And we were we, we try to talk like Americans used to talk, where I don't agree with what you're saying 
I'll defend to your right, to your to my death, your right to say what you're saying. And I, I do believe we need to sort of try to move back to that place because we uh, expend a lot of energy fighting among ourselves, people of a certain um, class, and and the wealthy just laugh at us while we do it. They just sit there laughing while we fight amongst ourselves and say, uh, you're evil and I need to destroy you. I, I, I was saying to her, this Republican friend of mine who voted for Donald Trump, I lay this at the feet of Lee Atwater, you know, who started this whole idea of scorched earth when he was Ronald Reagan's campaign director and, and decided that the Democrats were not just wrong, they were evil and they needed to be destroyed. And we can't seem to move away from that, can we? We, we are at this place now where... The other side is evil and it needs to be destroyed. And we can't ever seem to say, well, they, we just disagree with you. And we have the majority. So there's more of us that disagree and more of us that feel like they, the way the thing is built, even if, the, even if we try to be civil about our disagreements, it seems to me that the way it's built is working against us. So what do we do about the structural problems with democracy? I mean, again, we've talked about this a number of times and I'm still frustrated by the idea of like, what do we do about it? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I'll plug myself one second. I do another podcast as well called the Politics Guys podcast. And I, I do talk about legal issues always with a conservative professor um, on every episode of that. So we also try to have, you know, the, the you know more um, friendly conversations about issues we disagree about, and and bring our expertise to bear as best we can. But but I think in the country, to me, the biggest problem is, um, you know, like like with a lot of other problems in the 21st century, it's that the internet ruined everything, right? And I think that the chance of having um, a kind of civic democracy, a healthy civic democracy, um, I think is destroyed by the internet because it, it's, um, you know, if you think of older media environments where, um, you know, there's just fewer paths to reaching people's homes, right? Like like when you and I grew up, if, 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 if an outlet wanted to potentially reach everybody, you know, they either had to be like a TV station or, or a big radio station that could broadcast into everybody's homes or a daily newspaper that could get, get delivered to everybody's homes. And, and for those kind of business models to survive, they needed to have, um, uh, you know, enough um, cu customers, enough viewers or listeners or readers that, that that meant they needed people from both both sides of the political aisle. Right. So they, they couldn't just descend into partisan um, uh, journalism or, or affiliation journalism. But but as you kind of change the game by expanding the number of platforms, you know, from like, you know, a dozen to like a million, you know, then, um, you know, which is what the Internet does. You know, then it just sort of changes the, the rules of the game entirely so that, you know, essentially every media platform from the smallest blogs to like the Fox News, you know, their, their, their whole business model involves um, affiliation journalism, that they're, they got to develop a certain kind of uh, viewership and then just tell those people what they want to hear. And, and, you know, a lot of what they want to hear is how, how bad people on the other side are. And so I, I don't know how you could ever put that genie back in the bottle, but I, I think just like it destroyed the music industry and so many other things, you know, I, I think the Internet destroyed uh, our polity. It's interesting because, you know, when I was on trucking radio and this person I was referring to earlier is a truck driver, someone I met while I was on trucking radio. And there's a lot of conservative truck drivers. They they liked Donald Trump overall. And it's it's very difficult for me to tease out. Again, there's that idea of teasing out who's sincere, who's disingenuous, who is uh, a nativist, who is a supremacist. And who is just frustrated and thinks this is the pony to put their money on? To me, as I said to this friend of mine, I grew up in the New York area. I had been dealing with Donald Trump since the 1980s. I knew he was a grifter from way back. And he came from a family of grifters. And that's why I didn't think he would deliver on anything that he promised. And why I would never vote for the guy. He's, you know, trying to rep... Trying to tell us because he's from Queens that he's somehow working class. No, he was born on third base thinking he hit a home run. And uh, so I, I never bought the act. It was, it, you know, having said that to her, I thought, well, we're still talking. She hasn't hung up on me. So it isn't like, <laughs> it isn't like she's going to be like, fuck you. He's my guy. 
maybe we could just talk about this. Maybe we could say, this is what I believe, and that's what you believe. It's obviously not the same thing. It doesn't mean necessarily that you hold racist beliefs. It doesn't mean necessarily that you're a white supremacist. It means that economically you've been getting the shaft since the time you were born, and you thought this was the guy that was going to keep you from getting shafted economically because guess what? He was going to keep the Mexicans from coming into the country. He was going to put tariffs on everything. He was going to protect your jobs. He even talked about truck drivers. I mean, so of course you're like, hey, maybe this is the guy. It wasn't the guy. It's not going to be the guy. If he gets reelected, he's still not going to do anything for you. I hate to tell you. I hate to disavow you of that. But but at least I, f- I felt like at least we can still talk. I can say these things. She could say her things. We can continue talking and even have a few laughs. I wish the I wish this for the rest of the nation. I wish that the rest of the nation could try to talk with somebody who either voted for Donald Trump or still thinks he'd be a great president and keep a sense of humor about it. On some level, it's hilarious. I don't know if you can make it to that level. Just try. Because it's hilarious sometimes to think about uh, the amount of uh, calculation that needs to go on for anyone to think, this is the guy that's going to deliver to me the working class and help me move into the middle class. Because as Joe Biden has pointed out repeatedly, without a strong middle class, this country would have gotten nowhere. Exactly nowhere. Hey, Ken, did we run out of time to talk about the goddamn leak? We got about uh, three minutes left. Three minutes on the leak. I'm going to say my top pick for who the leaker is. It, I My top pick is Virginia Thomas, Justice Thomas's wife. It's funny you say that because that theory has sort of been emerging over the last few days that it's Ginny. Ginny did it. Yeah, I think wow. the, reasons, the reasons I would say that are, um, A, I, I don't believe it was a clerk at all. I just think um, clerks would not have... The, the motive to do it, they'd have a lot of disincentives to do it, and I, I think they wouldn't um, characterologically do it. So I think it was either one of the justices or someone that interacts a lot with one of the justices. Um, I think it's more likely a conservative than a, than a liberal justice, um, because I think um, the, um, the it seems to me strategically there's a strategic reason that a conservative might want it leaked, which is to lock in all five that are in that uh, Alito majority. Because we heard and, that, that for instance, there might be wavering on the part of Brett Kavanaugh because of what he said during his confirmation hearings, etc. So th- there could have been wavering on the part of any number of the five, and that's why this was leaked, to lock them down? Yeah, I think so. And then yeah. I also think with Virginia Thomas, some ad- additional evidence I would look at is— um, a, you know, we, we know that that she and Clarence talk about everything. They've both said that all the time. B, she's active in the right wing, um, you know, um, uh, communications world. Active. So, she was part of the insurrection. Yeah, part of the insurrection. But also, like, she has contacts, like, on the Wall Street Journal editorial board and things like that. Like, she has easy access to media. And um, and the Wall Street Journal actually broke this leak first. It wasn't Politico. So everybody's focusing on Politico because they got the full text of the draft. But the Wall Street Journal four days earlier described what was in that draft in their editorial. And and so only a conservative justice could have or, or someone from the conservative bloc could have been the leak to the Wall Street Journal because mm. that went to conservative Wall Street Journal editorial writers who use that information in an editorial to try to buck up all five of the justices on the Alito opinion to stay on it. It's absolutely inconceivable that that leak could have come from anyone on the liberal side. And I think that leak easily could have come from Virginia Thomas because she would have those kind of relations with people on the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial board. Well, we have about a minute left. So let me remind you, constitutional scholar and professor of law, Ken Katkin of Sam P. Chase College of Law, Northern Kentucky University, has been our guest for the last hour. Ken also hosts a long-running radio show, Trash Flow Radio, which can be heard on WAIF 88.3 FM in the Cincinnati area, Saturdays from 3 to 5 p.m. and online at waferradio.org. Tomorrow, a tribute to Howie Pyro. My voice is one of the ones that will be heard during that program, but uh, others as well. I'm going to get you to pick the song that we're going to go out on, Ken, by choosing a number one through five. So if you choose a number one through five, I will play that song and we will go out on it. It's uh, Ken as DJ here. Let's go big. Five. 
Whoa, going all the way to number five. I wouldn't have picked number five. I wouldn't have thought you would have picked number five. But here's AOD with Suicide Abortion. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Remember, if you hate this song, it's Ken's fault. I can't have a big one.